James's microphone has some audio problems on it on this episode. Sorry about that, mate, but uh, yeah, don't know what I can do about it. So his audio does sound a bit shitty, but hopefully the episode's still good, mate. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 3T RPG podcast. My name is Harrison Munt, and with me is Jamesy Clark. Yes. It's good. To, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. This is an RPG show all about tabletop RPGs. But before we begin, I want to thank Ace B, Jason Duncan, Julian Burnick, and Ryan Wayhab. These guys pledge at the Dreadlord level over on Patreon. And if you want to support the show, head over to patreoncom forward slash 3T RPG podcast. It's going to be a good show today, James, although we have got no Nick. Yeah. Yeah. He's gone out. Although- oh, wait a second. Although, so does that mean that it's, it's not good without Nick? All right. Well, let's let's put it this way then. We'll say that this it's going to be a show. Probably the easiest way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Right. Well, we've got our show for you today, ladies and gentlemen. We've got feedback. We've got what you've been slaying. We've got the main subject, which this time is going to be the complete history of the cyberpunk RPG. And then, of course, we're going to be answering your questions in the Electro Letters segment. You'll notice that the news is missing from there. It's because there's no news today, all right? Well, there's some, but it's all boring. Surprise, surprise. I mean, yeah, because obviously a lot of people wound down for the Christmas period, etc., etc. So we, there's no news. Let's do some feedback, shall we? Mm-hmm. The feedback side. The feedback side. Yes, bitch. The feedback side. It's the feedback section. Yeah, we take your comments and read them out. Yeah, feedback, bitch. All right. So uh, yeah, the last episode that we did, last normal episode, was of course the. Uh, 3T RPG Awards, and we asked for the people's sort of listeners, listener choice award, so that people could nominate one, and then whoever got the most nominations would win, and this time it was Matt Coville, but uh, yeah, in in uh, John Williams comes in with a bit of feedback, and he forgot to, you know, get to us sooner, and he says, if I had gotten to say so before the episode was recorded, I'd nominate the anime Goblin Slayer, for showing you how you can use goblins to be a real threat and horror when other people might brush them off. Uh, what do you reckon, James? That's not a bad idea, but um, we can't. They're not like um, we can't really, really nominate an anime because an anime yeah. is not a person. Well, it, it, the the award could be anything related to RPGs, so it could it could have won. Oh. if it, it you know, oh well, yeah, because Matt Cover won this time, but uh, I don't know. Previously, I think it was Lankmar for DCC that won. Oh yeah. So yeah, it could be anything, anything RPG related that people nominated. In this case, it was Matt Coville. But I think I think that's a very good shout because I can't remember where the fuck I saw it, but there was a great article I read once about using kobolds, right? Which like you know their their, their challenge rating is only like a quarter. Yeah, so you need super low level usually. Right, exactly. And but but the thing is, is that they're intelligent creatures, right? They're more intelligent than animals. They're devious, right? They're horrible. They're nasty. And uh, yeah, you they can be a challenge if used correctly. In fact, I think they should be. They shouldn't just run at you mindlessly. You know, they might attack and flee to another chamber in their nest or what the fuck ever. And Goblin Slayer is actually a really good anime. I mean, it pretty much has all the anime tropes, the big tits and things like this. But 
actually the battles are really gruesome and they show how like that sort of relentless strength and stuff can be really quite threatening yeah and, uh, and it also they just it really does sort of show just how brutal they can be and, and that's the, i think that was my favorite bit of it uh, it really um brought out fear and brutality well yeah i mean because the, the thing is is when you think about it they're dumb creatures you know they've got intelligence but they're unsophisticated intelligence and so they just they'll brute force things they're not, they're not going to do things cleanly and and uh, yeah there's some pretty horrific scenes in there i'm sort of dancing around one in particular but let's just oh, say yeah. a goblin has unrequited relations with somebody and it is horrific yeah but that's like that's the absolute proper brutality that people it's not necessarily you should incorporate those into your RPGs. It's just that tone, that is a, that is a proper fearsome tone. So that's like that was a really yeah, good one to use. They can be, they can be really horrific. Yeah, um, yeah I, it, great anime. Watch it if you if you play you know fantasy games. Give it give it a watch because it is really fucking good and uh, can teach you a lot about encounters. I think. Um, Ace B comes in and he says uh, about the dead can't lie our current ongoing Morkborg actual play he says are you playing the omens rule every single time I had a player take large damage they wasted an omen in my game so yeah omens I uh, basically we are using them yes but I think sometimes it kills the tension a little bit in the uh, in the actual play when mid combat somebody doesn't like a roll and enemies done they get them to re-roll it yeah. so yeah we are using them and the results are shown in the actual play but i don't always um keep it in the edit basically yeah yeah exactly it's it, it, it we feel it comes sometimes it dulls the fire a little bit yeah exactly because it's like you, you're trying to get this hit off and things like this and you're just like ah fuck i'll spend an omen just keep in the last result because that's the one that actually happened anyway and you know you can use omens to re-roll an enemy's roll which actually i think you and nick probably need to remember but if somebody you know does huge damage on you you're like no nah, fuck it i'll spend an omen they might roll lower uh, so yeah. just bear that in yeah, mind yeah, for but, next time but thanks for the reminder ace yeah, thanks, Ace. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great rule, and I love the fact that omens have sort of more uses than just re-rolling, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty fucking cool. But Shane Ellswoody comes in, um, talking about our episode uh, 72, making a campaign setting from scratch. Yeah, in this episode we created a setting in, a, in an hour, under an hour, and it was uh, about high school kids fighting monsters. Um, <laughs> and he says, um, you guys ever produce a bad episode? That said, number 72, farts aside, because I was farting a lot during that episode, <laughs> creating a campaign was the best of the best. I laughed so much through this episode. Class of the Apocalypse sounds awesome. Please, you have to record an AP of this setting, and please don't leave out the Transylvania movie version of Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> yes, mate. Yeah, I mean, the, I will say this. We definitely want to do that. We definitely do. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, current situations. Yeah, it's gone into lockdown again, right? I've had some news, some good news, to be fair. Try and figure out what it is, listeners. But, yeah, I don't know. We're going to tr really try to finish this Morkborg one this year because we r have to, basically. Um, we'll get around to doing Class of the Apocalypse at some point. But if you do want a Transylvania movie version of Dracula, go and listen to, uh, Go and listen to the um, Raven Lord actual play. Yes. Because... Yeah, if you haven't done so already. Well, people have said that my version of Strahd 
was the best one. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. I heard it. The Queen herself wrote in. <laughs> well, actually, I, you, you may think I'm joking, but somebody did say that. But there's only one person. But I do. But you know what? <laughs> I think I trust their opinions. I think I think they're great. I think I think they're the best. And in actual fact, that was the Queen. Yeah, thanks, thanks. But yeah, listen to Ravenlord if you haven't yet, because that is is full of cheesy gothic horror. I mean, that's basically the entire thing. Um, it's pretty badass, if I, even if I do say so myself. It was it was a fucking fun campaign, to be fair, and it, it's it's yeah. it, it had some really fucking funny moments in it, and it was yeah, it was a good good fucking setting too, man. I want to play that again. Um, we got one last one that comes in from a bloke calling himself Lawrence, right? If that is his real name. And he says, you guys continue to kill it with the at Morkborg actual play. You are all my definitive voice of DCC. You're good at what you do. Cheers. I don't usually like reading ones out like that, but I feel like I need it. All right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's good. It's nice. Thanks. Thanks very think... much. Hopefully the uh, second part of the priest episode will be coming very soon. But uh, let's let's go on to what we've been playing because it's been a while since we recorded, and a lot's fucking happened. And one of these. Oi, yeah. What you slaying? So we've been playing Planescape, the campaign setting, in using Troika, the game RPG. Isn't that right, James? That is right. That's exactly right. And it's a hoot. It's- it's very fun, and um, yeah. So, so Troika is a very, very simple OSR system based on the old Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy fighting fantasy uh, <laughs> game books. Um, either one would actually be cool, but uh, yeah. And uh, it's a pretty simple system, but we're using it to play a pretty complicated setting, which is Planescape. And uh, essentially, it's like it's like all world religions are correct, and their the belief of all religions creates the heavens themselves and keeps them going. As such, all the gods focus on like keeping the real worlds that believe in them alive, and but they exist in a place called Planescape, which is like there's a dimension for every alignment in D and D, and there's one at the centre for neutrality, um, which is called the Outlands, and right in the middle of that is a floating ring city called Sigil, and that is where our campaign is taking place. It's basically the plane of neutrality. Um, these guys uh, basically woke up and were you know scarred from head to toe with information about about where they need to go after they've woken up they awaken this mortuary and anyway they find out they a they can't die because of some curse that's that's that struck them or it's more difficult for them to die i should say and b that they belong to a secret group of people called the collectors and these people basically offer their services of collecting items from all around the plains if people have lost something or if they want to retrieve something then the player characters will travel to different planes and find it for them. Or they might just travel within Sigil, the city in which this takes place. One of the coolest things about this setting, though, is that Sigil is is devoted to neutrality. And as such, the Lady of Pain, who's this kind of goddess who rules over the city, is so powerful, she doesn't (laughs) allow gods to come into Sigil. And she got basically two abilities. She can look at you and kill you instantly, or look at you and maze you. And mazing is like you get put into an extra-dimensional, almost unsolvable maze where you're made uh, immortal, and it's likely you're going to go insane before you actually get out of the bloody maze. Yeah, it's madness, isn't it? It's, it's almost eternal suffering or immediate death. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty fucking much. And uh, that's that's what I th- think makes it so interesting, because part of the way the planes work is that if... 
if one plane skews in the direction of another, then there'll be this sort of um, that they'll be, they'll come closer. So it could take you like ten years to travel from one plane to another, but it could take you ten seconds. Say, for example, well, let's just talk about the last episode of the campaign because <laughs> essentially the guys kind of woke up. It was really fucking good, but and I thought I knew this was going to be a fun thing to do. But the guys uh, sort of woke up post Christmas and they had a job. This guy called Anton has. Uh, written a book about the war crimes of a, an ultraloth called Grimslark. And, uh, yeah, basically he fled from the Grey Wastes, which is the, um, what is it, the neutral evil realm, and accident- yeah, he accidentally left the book behind. So he wanted the guys to go and get it. Now, part of Sigil is that it's called the City of Doors, and a door can be absolutely anything as long as it's door-shaped, and it could lead anywhere. And also the key can be absolutely anything, from a key to patting yourself on the head uh, or to saying bibble yeah. when you so walk through. So an action or, 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 a, or, a, or a, a key word. Mm-hmm. Yep, and in fact, like to get that. to the, their base, these guys, they have to say alley-oop and jump when they enter into this circle of trash bags. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so the, the, the thing is, is that to get to the Grey Wastes, the guy did know a portal because he'd escaped from the Grey Wastes to Sigil. And he knew where the portal is and also knows that there wasn't a key. The only thing is, is that the uh, neutral evil realm and the neutral realm have to be close enough for the portal to be activated. So the guys basically have to walk around doing enough neutral evil stuff or <laughs> just wait, you know, but they have to kind of do a bunch of neutral evil stuff to get to get the planes closer together and I knew they were going to have fun with it. It was pretty fucking hilarious. It went it went a bit wrong. It did go um, very wrong. Although James you're playing uh, he's James is actually playing a uh, a giant ammonite which is a uh, yeah. class in Troika and it's basically a uh, well it's a big big ammonite. It's like a squid like <laughs> sort of creature. And um yeah, and uh, but you're you're from Mount Celestia, which is the neutral good realm, I think. And t- basically, you know, you don't you didn't want to get involved in the neutral evil, but the other guys yeah. did, and they immediately went to the hive in the middle of this fucking square. And one of them, they they see these things called debus trying to brick up a uh, an entrance, and they start taking bricks off. And one of them throws it at a child trying to knock a mushroom ice cream out of his hand. Yeah, a brick of all fucking things. A brick, right? He could have just slapped it out of his hand, right? That probably would have done the trick. But he <laughs> throws a brick at the kid's hand, and I'm like, well, how much damage is this really going to do? He's hitting him in the hand. Fucking Troika's damage is weird, right? Because you roll on a table every time. So you rolled a d6... But he got fucking six, which meant it was like eight damage. And I'm like, well, that's a child. So how many HP realistically does he have? The child's dead. Suddenly, <laughs> all of the squares sort of turn their eyes towards them. And the thing about the Lady of Pain is, as well, is that she is devoted to keeping the plane neutral. So she immediately yeah. sees these guys and starts descending upon them, as does the Harmonium, which is like her police, right? And... It was pretty bad because he, the, Lan, one of the characters, throws the brick, kills the child. The mother's standing there screaming, wailing, crying. And uh, the harmonium point at one of the other characters, this guy called Rockford, and they go, right, stop right there. And he goes, not today, and turns around, runs, right? Crit fail straight away. Slips on the kid's yep. blood, lands on top of the woman, right? In an in, incriminating pose. Yeah, let's put it that way, right? Like further worsening her misery. And, um, yeah, it was pretty fucking crazy. I mean, I won't go into too much detail because we've got loads and loads of shit to get through. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting. And the cool thing about the... They they escaped the Lady of Pain and got to the Great Wastes, right? 
And uh, the cool thing about this le- level of that realm is that it's black and white. There's no color there, and yeah. it is proper old school CRT granular black and white TV kind of. Yeah, black like and white. It, your vision even has like a film grain effect on it. Like, um, and um, yeah, it was pretty funny because the, the, the one of the features of the Grey Wastes is it's inhabited entirely by demons and fiends, right? And the um, the atmosphere of the place literally can cause apathy so the the longer you stay there the less you care about going home and this affected one of the characters so badly that <laughs> that they, was so funny it was so stupid and they got to uh, they got to the prison where they needed to retrieve the book and one of the, the guys was super super depressed and just sitting on the floor and he's like oh you're a fat prick I don't even know why we're doing this <laughs> and then they got into a slap fight in the middle of in the middle of this plane that's stuck Cartoon. in eternal war Proper cartoon style slap fight because they were miserable and they were like, Ooh. it was so fucking funny, yeah. But they, 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 anyway. Long story short, they got the book, um, escaped back to Sigil. But once they got to Sigil, the Harmonium and the Lady of Pain were sort of um, looking around the graveyard where the portal was, right? Yeah. So Lan, who's this character who was a postman from our previous campaigns, he gets out his folding bike and he goes, "Fuck it, I'm riding away." And I'm like, man. This is this was a lesson in how powerful the Lady of Pain is because you know she's not even statted. That's how powerful she is, right? Her stats might as well just say you lose, okay? So Lan <laughs> he um he gets on his bike, starts cycling down the graveyard, and of course she sees him immediately. I I asked Lan to roll anyway to see if he gets seen because if he got a crit he could have got away, but he didn't, and uh, he gets mazed instantly, and he's stuck in this yeah. maze that spans so far that it goes like beyond the horizon. And curious, and I don't know if you'd want to um, um, actually spoil this or not, but did you have to? Did you roll a, the the book of life, the D two, to see whether or not it was instant death or mazing? Yes, yeah, I did actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, nice. Uh, so think- he's actually quite lucky. Well, in a sense, he's lucky. But the thing is, his mazing is just as bad as death. I think the reason it exists as a mechanic is because actually... If the whole party does something stupid and gets mazed... Well, that's that's an adventure. That could be really fun. But in this particular case... It's it's highly unlikely they'd get out, but... Well, this is the, you are actually this is giving the, James an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I did say to him. I did say to him that, that you know, I, I thought to myself at the time, what we could do is run a session where we do his mazing. But we're not talking about like, you know, you could solve this in a day. This is like every move, every action he takes is going to be at least a year. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not really sure what we could do, but I did print off like an impossible maze from the internet and I'm just going to post it through his door and just be like, right, solve that by next week and you can get out in 1D six years. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> but yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, but fortunately, this provided a distraction for the other two to get away. Of course, Michelle, you... No, James, your character, Michelle, wasn't in trouble because um, you didn't do anything. So, but uh, Yeah, it, I, didn't, I didn't cause the, the, the hecticness that... Um, meant for the, all those planes to get together so I wasn't being looked for um, yeah I mean that, that was a it was a pretty fucking good episode so we haven't got back to actually the part where the guys are giving the book back to the guy and accepting their award because you know we just came up to time basically but this is part of this is part of what makes Planescape so great is that it's like it's quite a complicated setting, but the thing is, is that it's once you get it and once you play it, it's like the the possibilities are just endless and really fucking cool. You can go from a bustling city campaign 
to a campaign set in a black and white world full of perpetual war between demons. I mean, it's just so fucking fun. Yeah, it's pretty fucking badass. It's, I like it um, because um, I think I gave some feedback the other day saying it's, it's, so, it's so very allowing because it's yeah, yeah, extremely yeah. gonzo because of how it's built. But then, and I think this is one thing that our party needs to realise, and I think the most recent session really allowed us to remember Lady of Pain um, yeah, we really need to actually start being careful about what we do because I think at the beginning, because we haven't necessarily done anything too bad in terms of like um, bringing uh, planes closer or further away or anything. Um, previously, we kind of have gone a bit wild because of how different and weird the characters and the, and the, um, the whole place is. Yeah, but you, you know, it's like you said, you have to understand that she can she can basically detect imbalance. And one of the other players had it correct, but the difficulty is, is it, it, he, he basically said, you know, that, that if you do do something evil, make sure you balance it out with something good, and vice versa. But the thing is, it's that moral dilemma, isn't it? Because actually, despite how it sounds, all of the characters started off as uh, good aligned. I'm actually tracking alignments and things like this in this campaign, because it's important. But everyone started as good aligned. So if you do really do go and help someone out and do something good, do you really then want to just go and like slap a baby? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's like if you want to live, probably yes. That's the thing. Yeah, it's one of those really weird internal conflicts, which is what I immediately faced because of my new character Michelle. Um, was, mm. Yeah, was neutral good, and as soon as I was just like, yeah, we just got to do some, you know, realize got to do some evil doings. It's just like, yeah, no, I'll just wait by the portal um, and just I'll let. Well, I did. I did find it funny, you know, how quickly the other two players that were present at that session just went all right well let's go and do some fucking evil shit and i was like you know alternatively you could just wait because eventually the planes are going to skew in that direction because of somebody turning yeah, up because someone else but yeah, someone else somewhere else would do yeah, it yeah but you know you don't know who it's going to be but it happened once it happened once enough to let that guy come to sigil and give you the mission so it could happen again but these guys were just like right give me a brick where's a child <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Let's kill him. All right, um, uh, that's that's it for Planescape at the moment. That's kind of where we're at. Um, the, the only other sort of subplot that's going on at the moment is that their boss, it has been heavily implied that he, this guy called Farod, he's, he, it's been heavily implied that he uh, is the one that cursed them with this immortality curse. And also every time they die, they wake up with less of their selves sort of remaining, um, even to the point yeah. where one of the other characters, this guy Lan, um, but a lot of people have been telling him that one of his previous incarnations was a complete gibbering maniac um, and things like this. But yeah, so they're investigating that. At the moment, they have suspicions that he might be a lich deceiver, which is like a lich that can change his shape. And as a result, is unkillable unless they find where he keeps his soul, basically. But yeah, that's yeah. where we're at. Uh, we got a couple of other things that we've been slaying. So we played Honey Heist. Um, we'll just get into yeah, this real nice. quick. Great fucking session. Christmas game. Yeah, Christmas game. Uh, Nick ran it. It was awesome. Yeah, it was really good. And uh, Nick said, we're going to try and make this a tradition now. Um, or we're going to sort of, every Christmas, you know, when we've got a, a little break, we'll, uh, you know, just get together and play a micro RPG. And this particular one is really quite good. So you kind of, it's basically about bears having to steal a queen bee um, from a honey convention. And yeah. Nick said it in the future. And we, yeah, basically, you only have two stats. It's bear and criminal. 
Um, and if you succeed in one, you uh, you get you get a point in the other, basically. And so they keep on balancing out, and you kind of have to keep your bear nature and your criminal yeah. nature separate. Yeah. Either t- do something towards the the heist or be a bear. Mm. Um, that, that's really the two mechanics, and that's the way to balance it out. Because if you do too many criminal activities, you become a full blown criminal, get caught. And if you do too many bear activities, you just become feral and fuck off. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great fun game. Uh, I won't go too much into detail about what happened, but it was extremely fun because because it's a heist game and because it's really simple. We it, we just spent like the first half of the game planning, acquiring materials, things like this, coming up with the plan, yeah. scoping out. We even out. had um, we have we even had uh, what they bloody called somebody who drew out the map. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and so it mm. was. It was pretty fun, and then the second half was us actually executing the plan, things going wrong, things like this. I mean, it it was it was weird to say the least, because because it's a Christmas game and you're playing bears, and it was a one shot, right? None of us took it very seriously. I think it's fair to say, um, and our characters were incredibly w- weird, right? Because we had, <laughs> I was a panda who knew kung fu called Grizzly, and we also had another person was, called um... Winnie the Jew. Yeah, yeah, we had silly names. I was um, I was Bartholomew, and I was a honey badger. Yeah, and it was it was actually really fun, and and we yeah we fucked around quite a lot. But one of the well, I can't remember how it even happened. But the thing is, obviously bears can't speak human, and we were trying to distract the guards. One person was going to lock them in the loos. The other person was going to get them to go into the toilets. And obviously you can't talk, so he used the little beeper thing on a walkie-talkie. One of the characters, and it said "pedophile in the loos." Everyone get there now. Um, and, oh yeah, Morse code. That's what he used. Yeah, Morse code. <laughs> and then uh, obviously all the guys, all the security went in, and then we locked the door behind them because we nicked key cards earlier on. Fucking weird. <laughs> Fucking weird. But it was a it was yeah. a really really fun game, and I would recommend anyone if if you've got like a free night in gaming or it's coming up to the end of a campaign and you want a week off, play Honey Heist. It's really good. Yes. Goblin. 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 Uh, yeah, I also ran on the twenty uh, ninth uh, of deck. I uh, ran a cyberpunk online game, and for this, I just used the Troika system because it's what I'm currently playing, and I just did a quick hack of it to make some characters and uh, basically redid the. Uh, uh, I had five players, I think, um, uh, some of which aren't regular RPG players. A couple, I think, I've never played, but. Yeah, and uh, we did a cyberpunk game. We basically did the um, Dirt Boy Blues episode four, which was the one set on the train where the guys have to... Yeah, basically their team are runners uh, in this particular case and had to retrieve a briefcase that was being ported from one city to the next on a train. And it was being taken by a poser gang. And poser gangs are gangs that cybernetically all look like the same celebrity. Um, in this case, David Attenborough, because <laughs> because it's funny. But yeah, so um, we, we had a great time, and uh, the guys absolutely smashed it. Um, and basically, you know, it was it's a fun adventure, and it was just it's going from car to car, seeing how people would deal with problems. And at one point, my mate Katie, she um, they got to the casino car right, and uh, they know that the club car is next where the Attenboroughs are. And there's a VIP area uh, in the casino car, and just above that is a hatch. And she's like, she looks over at the door to the next carriage, sees that it's guarded by two bouncers, and just goes, fuck this. And she just goes, right, I'm walking into the VIP area, and I'm acting like I own the place. Like, social stealth, do you know what I mean? Like, nobody's going to notice me. She rolls it, and it's fucking awesome. So she just gets up there, and then, whip, she's right up into the... uh, 
into the ceiling and is on top of the train. And so she just fucking walks across the top of the train, like digging her daggers in to sort of uh, give her purchase and then just leaps into the club car on the other side. And I just thought that was fucking badass. Like, there were a lot of cool things. She also bribed a, a guard with hentai as well, which is pretty cool. One annoying thing, and I mean, it's possible they might listen to this podcast, but one fucking annoying thing was that my friend Cleve, his girlfriend was supposed to play, right? And uh, she was angry at him, so she uh, didn't end up coming until later. And, I, and she just said, I'll just get started, I'll join in later. We were on the final scene of the game when she decides to turn up, right? And that's bloody annoying, because I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? Right? I can't just say, well, I could have just said, right, no, it's too late, mate. She, she, you know, whatever. But stupidly, I let her join in. And, you know, it wasn't that bad, it was fine. But I kind of, the way I wrote her character in is I said, all right, you're not working with this team. You're a rival runner who's after the same package. And so the final encounter included a bit of PvP in it. <laughs> the upsetting thing about it is, though, is that she um, came in, basically stole the package, and then fucked off, like leaped out the train and just j- dived into the wastelands between the cities. And um, so all the all the guys' like hard work just got undone right in the final encounter, and um, yeah, in in the end, the guy who who hired them to do the mission, it turns out he'd also hired her and just sort of hedged his bets, you know, and uh, he gave them a jelly of the month subscription card to say sorry, but it was a good game and. In the end, uh, everyone enjoyed it so much that we uh, that they wanted us to carry on and make it into a campaign. So we're doing that now. And uh, I've switched systems because Troika obviously isn't made for cyberpunk. So we're actually switching to cyberpunk 2020, which is going to be bloody fun. Oh. Um, yeah, but we're, obviously this episode is going to be about cyberpunk. So we'll get into that a bit later. Uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of things I got for Christmas. But what did you get for Christmas, James? Okay, so RPG related. Um, I yeah, finally... Well, obviously. Of course, I finally got an all rolled up boy. And that's the um, oh. that's one of the the sort of like pencil case or keep keep everything in awesome things that you just we literally roll it up and then uh, you've got clasp around it to keep it all together and then it holds like your book, your dice tray, your dice like pens and that kind of paraphernalia. And I finally got one, um, which is awesome um, and included in it. Thank you very much, Harrison. Um, my missus and, and Harrison worked together to produce me a customised character sheet based on me and my tropes. And obviously, one of my favourite one uh, couple was um, I wear uh, tiny shorts because I always wear shorts. I have not yet succumbed to wearing trousers. Yeah, but yet. it's not like just wearing shorts, like you know, like a cool surfer guy might. James wears tiny shorts that like a homosexual man might wear. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I love them. Um, <laughs> and, um, the other one was that I have uh, the ability to eat two thousand times faster than anyone else. <laughs> Mate, you, you, uh, listeners, be thankful that you've never seen James eat. It's insane. Actually, I've got that picture of you eating a hot dog, basically, in one bite. I might put that on the Facebook so people can witness it. <laughs> oh, no! It. I can't remember that! <laughs> it was funny, man. And it was when you were a bit more chubby as well. It's not a flattering picture. <laughs> oh, no! It is that one! <laughs> yeah, well, that's cool, though. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, the thing is, I when we made that character sheet as a little surprise to put in your... Uh, all rolled up basically it's a tool wrap for your rpg ship but yeah i was like this could get really nasty couldn't it because like uh, so that's why i put all of your stats as straight 18s because i really didn't want james to look at it and go hang on a minute strength one what the fuck yeah that's a smart move yeah i get it because if you actually legitimately rolled it up i could have got bad stats or good ones but i think you played it safe there because it was just it's really fun to sort of read through and i giggled about it 
as well. But your um, your lovely girlfriend also got you uh, yes. Merck Borg, right? Yes, mate. I've got I've got it. I've got it now. I've got it. I own it. All of us own it now. I know. So such a such a good. It is. Uh, it's beautiful. One of the favourite things of it was the artwork, and now I own it. So just sort of very nice. Also showed uh, my daughter it, and um, she was actually quite um, gobsmacked because she loves art and stuff at the minute, uh, and she she really really enjoys the look of it. Yeah, and she's uh, like almost a teenager, so she's like super into like being grimy and and uh, you know. next month yeah. she's a teenager. Fuck. Oh my god, man! Help me. Well, so well, no, now. That means it's time for her to get a job, right? Start paying our way. Yeah, start running games. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need. We need we now that she's a she's basic basically an adult, right? That's free <laughs> child labour, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, run our games for us, you wench. Um. Yeah. So I, I I also got a couple of RPG related Christmas presents. One was Art and Arcana, which is a uh, uh, a book all about the artwork of D and D, and it is so fucking nice. I mean. If you're at all interested in the history of, you know, TSR and Wizards of the Coast and things like this, um, it is really quite an incredible, uh, incredible like read. I feel like, because I, feel like I want to see go- that when we're next able to meet up in person. Well, it's beautiful, and, and the cool thing is, it's got like a lot of the old cover arts from D and D, which I absolutely love. But you know, without the logos and stuff in the way, so you can Has really it got appreciate any of the them. bad ones in there. Curious. Yeah, yeah, they, you know, they, they, they go through the whole thing, and you know, it's that's awesome. It, it really starts right at the beginning and uh, shows how the art came about. You know, like it even shows like the references that the artists base their stuff on. It gets, it's got you know the really old campaign maps that were drawn and things like this. It's just beautiful. Starts all the way at the beginning at Chainmail before it was even D and D. You know, and uh, it's such a fascinating read because it's got you know all the history in there as well as. It's mostly about the art, but it's pretty cool. And then you get like these occasional splash pages where it say, you know, show the evolution of the art of uh, the Beholder from back then oh, until now, and amazing. things like this. It's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous book. And uh, I, yeah, I've been reading it like a little bit at a time because it's a good one just to break out and you know sit, really appreciate the art. Um, absolutely love it. Beautiful, beautiful book. And I, I also got um, a bit of a weird coincidence because. My mum bought me Planescape Torment and Icewind Dale Enhanced Edition, Special Edition, right, for the Switch. And it's a really, really lovely present, and it comes in this huge box with a bunch of goodies in there. But bizarrely, my mum bought it for me off Amazon, and then when it arrived, it didn't have the game in it. But it had everything else, which is fucking cool. And um, James bought me... You bought me the the game on its own. So, to combined... You know, you got I the had whole, the whole thing. Whole shebang. But it's, it's a shame that your mum's special edition, the game, was not included. That's pretty dicky. Well, um, I did. I don't know what happened, but I did say like the box and everything that comes in it is worth the price anyway because it's so fucking cool. Um, and it's got like you know a map of the uh, the Sword Coast, a map of Planescape, and previous our previous Fandalin campaign was set in the Sword Coast, so the maps I can actually use. Comes with a, a stress ball of Morty, who's this floating skull in there, which is pretty awesome, because I just think of it as Daniel. But it also comes with a uh, metal dice set. And, oh, that's uh, awesome. It's got yeah. the, that's the first metal dice set you own now, isn't it? It is, and it's a really yes. fucking nice one too, because sometimes with these metal dice sets, you can sometimes pick them up for like a tenner nowadays, but it'll be like hollow metal, or it's those ones where the, rubber, uh, the numbers are just sort of... Um, 
painted on and they come off. But this is a proper engraved one. They're silver, and really they, heavy. Are they full metals as well? Yes, Solid. yeah, they are. And yeah, they're, they're really heavy and they've got red letters on them and the top number on each dice has the Lady of Pain symbol on them. So it's just it's fucking so cool, man. Um, yeah, it comes with a bunch of stuff and also it's got that Lady of Pain idol in there, which is a big metal thing. And I've come up with a cool use for it in my game. So with the idol uh, that looks like the Lady of Pain, it's, it's on the table from the start of the game. Players can use it at any point to influence the story. It could be that a uh, enemy's plan gets fucked up. It could be that a um, and you know an ally turns up at the right moment, things like this. But as soon as they use it, it goes to me, and then I get to use it against the players. Um, and yeah, it's just a nice thing, man. It's and the the box set and the game obviously is fucking great. If you've never played Planescape Torment, go and do it. I have actually not played Icewind Dale before, so I'm gonna crack into that first. I think. Yeah, great box set. And if if you know if you do see the special edition going anywhere, grab it because the maps, dice, and things like this, it's like so worth the price, and you get a really fucking good game with it. Um, but yeah, those dice sets, man, I've seen them go for you know sixty to seventy quid at some conventions. You know. Yeah, no, so, they're, they're they're mental, and especially yeah, the solid ones themselves. I mean, you can pick up an okay set um, for 30, 40 quid. But yeah, easily, the more money you put in, the better the quality those kind of dice um, sets are. Yeah, yeah, they're great, man. I'll have to give you a go on them when I next see you, but they also come in like a cool tin with the Lady of Pain on it. And, and it came, Oh, I've seen the tin. It came with a journal as well, like a, a leather journal with a, with a um, Planescape symbol on it, which is fucking cool. So that's going to be my new notebook for this campaign. Pretty cool, man. Yes, mate. Yeah, we've, we've run real long on this fucking what you've been saying, but as I said, it's been a long time. Uh, so let's just get into the main subject, shall we? Tonight... I'm here to say goodbye to all of you. Owing to the recent infamy of the Cyberpunk 2077 video game, more and more people are flocking to the gaming table to play its original pen and paper counterparts. At 45 motherfucking quid for the rulebook and 30 pounds for the PDF, the latest version of Cyberpunk RPG, Cyberpunk Red, is a little bit too steep for some. But fear not, the franchise has seen many different iterations, all with their own merits and some much cheaper than Cyberpunk Red. So today we're going to go through the whole story of the franchise and give an overview of each variation of the game in the hopes that you may more easily decide which version of the game is most suited to you, um, as well as give you some insight into its creation. Before we start though, I will say this, there's not that much information about the goings on of the company and things out there, but as for the history of the game, that's kind of what we're, we're going to go into here and probably sprinkle in a few fun facts there. But for those... Who don't know James Cyberpunk? Are you familiar with the genre? Yes. Good. But uh, <laughs> some idiots listening, right? And we know they're idiots because they're listening to this. They might not know. So it's Cyberpunk isn't just the name of the game, right? It's also the name of the genre, right? And the game was created by a a black man called Mike Pondsmith, who has the most amazing voice. Seriously, go he and does. listen to it. In- he does. Have you heard it? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched um, I watched a little snippet of him. He, he's pro- he's got one of the best radio voices. Totally, he's so he charismatic, should... and he could he could say tell you anything, and you're just like, yeah, I feel I feel at ease now. I feel at ease. He could he could tell me to jump off a cliff, and I'd probably do it. Yeah, yeah. But, but we should like. I, I'm going to try and email him, get him to do, like record some stings for this podcast because his voice is amazing. Yeah, he's a he's a big deal though. Imagine if we got to get him to do a voice clip, that would be phenomenal. I'm going to try it. I'm, I will not leave him alone. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, depicting a dystopian future, transhumanist themes and anti-establishment ideals often set against a starkly neon city backdrop. Cyberpunk is an often philosophically driven genre about fighting oppression mandated by huge corporations hence the punk part of the title the cyber part of the name is obviously a reference to technology transhumanism and the augmentation of one's life and self with the use of advances in science and gadgetry notable things in this genre include ghost in the shell black mirror blade runner bubblegum crisis and snow crash to name a few but here's my first fun fact fun fact Fact. You ready? Go on. So the actual novel that the cyberpunk RPG was based on is a novel called Hardwired by, by a bloke whose name I can't remember. But um, yeah, go and check out Hardwired. That's the one that started the actual RPG. So while there are a lot of cyberpunk stuff out there, most of the sort of tech, tech you'll see in the books, it came from a variety of places, but mostly from this uh, novel called Hardwired. But um, the genre really started in the 1960s with pulp, what's called new wave sci-fi novels that depicted dystopian outcomes of drug culture and the constant upheaval of culture and technology. And it was born basically from a fear of automation, like robots are going to take your job, <laughs> and, uh, which is kind of true, really, yeah. when you think yeah, about yeah. it. I mean, there, there have actually when been a lot of, s- of, of places where robots have literally um, taken jobs. Mostly warehouse stuff. And car factories. But think about this, right? I went to... uh, I had beans on toast for um, breakfast this morning. And you know what made my bread toasted? Basically a robot. I mean, it's a toaster. Yeah. But that's a robot, isn't it? It is, yeah. So they were were right to be scared. Because if one day, right, (laughs) somebody hacks your toaster and then it comes after you, that's going to be fucking horrible. I know, just come at you trying to, like, fling fucking burnt toast at you. Well, I was thinking more it would, like sort of sidle up and then sort of put your hand in the toasting bit while you're asleep (laughs) but then to be fair the plug wouldn't reach from my kitchen to my bedroom so it's you know don't worry about it don't worry about it (laughs) but yes anyway i mean in the 60s you know it was it was like people were scared of machines taking their jobs and you know if, if you look at even later on movies like tron you know, that tried to show what the inside of a computer looked like. It's, I mean, you can see that people didn't really know what they were talking about. But yes, obviously robots are a thing nowadays, and toasters. And uh, yeah, the term cyberpunk was first coined by a sci-fi writer called Bruce Sterling. But writers like Philip K. Dick really started the genre with like Android's Dream of Electric Sheep or whatever the fuck it's called. But that was before it had a name. And so when you think about it, right, Mike Pondsmith... Calling his game Cyberpunk is like Call of Cthulhu calling their game horror. Yeah, yeah. Or d- imagine if you just had a had a. F- uh, and I thought actually this might be a good idea. Just call your RPG fantasy role playing game, because then when people Google that, yeah, hopefully it'll you know, come right at the top because it's the name of it. It worked out for Mike Pondsmith, man. I mean, he's he's done well off it, right? So just anyway, copyright three T RPG podcast. We're making fantasy role playing game. Trademark. Thank you. 
So, so let's actually get into the uh, creation of the game, right? Cast your mind back, James, to 1985, mm. before you were born. Yes. Manga and anime weren't exactly widely available unless you were a serious collector who wanted to import from Japan. And that's what Mike Pondsmith did. At the time, he was 31 and likely bored because the internet wasn't a thing. And he ordered a bunch of Gundam manga from Japan, which is a mecha thing for those that don't know. Uh, but there was a problem. A slight oversight, right? Because Mike Pondsmith didn't read Japanese. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking was going to happen. Basically, he tried to guess what the story was by looking at the pictures and uh, yeah, and then based a role-playing game on it. It's like the you know that's the the actions of a truly rational man right there. Yeah. But thank God he did because uh, yeah, he he basically called his um, his RPG Mechton, and uh, it was based on the Gundam games and uh, based on the Gundam mangas. And this is why he founded a small press company called Artalsorian Games to publish Mechton, which actually saw a fair bit of success and to this day remains probably the best mech RPG out there. And having the su- seen the success of this game and that he could make a living off designing games, Pondsmith decided to go on and make a second edition of Mechton, then a game called Teenagers from Outer Space. Of course. Um, which, uh, to be fair, right, based solely on that name, I feel like that should have been what this episode is about. To be fair, I, I'd already written about four lines of this uh, review before uh, I learned about that, and there's no way I'm deleting that amount of work. So maybe another day. <laughs> yeah, maybe another day. Maybe another day. I've already, I'd already written 20 words. <laughs> Anyway, um, the fourth book published was a futuristic game set in the far-flung space future of 2013. Oh. Um, the first version of Cyberpunk, which was called Cyberpunk 2013. And that probably seemed like a really cool date back then. Yeah, this first book became stupidly popular and thus became the most, the main focus of our Talsorian games from then on. And in fact, to quote Mike Pondsmith, he knew the game was a success when he first brought it to Gen Con and they, they basically had them made up in box sets and he sold out of 300 in the first 20 minutes of it opening and was desperately trying to get um, them more made as the con went on. That's madness. I know, it's crazy. And he said, you know, at the time, it was basically like desktop printing the way they were doing it and they're printing it, making up these box sets and brought it to Gen Con and sold out in 20 minutes. And yeah, pretty fucking cool. Um, but let's dive into the first version of the game because... The game has seen many iterations, but it, the, the actual evolution of it is somewhat minimal, but we'll get into that. But yeah, this first version of the game will kind of give us a basis for what the grounding of Cyberpunk is like. Um, and uh, yeah, Cyberpunk 2013 was originally published in 1988, great year, great year, and features a simple homemade looking layout, but with like comic book style art. It's like angsty and 90s, you know even though it was before the 90s. <laughs> but yeah, it's separated into three books, which came in a box set, as I mentioned, and a core book called A View from the Edge, which is the handbook for rules and character creation. And there's a combat book called Friday Night Firefight, and we'll get back to that in a second. Uh, the third one is called Welcome to Night City, which basically details the game's main setting. And the setting of this game is, like, fittingly bleak. It starts with a timeline of world events that led up to the far future of 2013, such as the stock market crash in 1994, a Central American war, a a plague in 2000, and the invention of the cyber modem in 2005. It also mentions the first corporate war in 2004, where 18 of the world's top companies, based on real organisations, ploughed their money into fighting one another, further extending the pop. 
further extending the poverty gap and cementing the world's dark future. Worth noting, I think this is right, I hope it's not wrong, but there is a company, because this was sort of like pre-internet days, there's a company in the game called Internet. Uh, <laughs> I, I, that's why I love this stuff, man, because it's just like what people thought the future was going to look like. Uh, it's crazy. It's crazy good. I love the uh, names of all of the, the source books. Yeah, it's cool, man. It's cool. And like the um, Friday Night Firefight actually is a pretty interesting one. And uh, yeah, we'll get into that. But yeah, it, it, the names in this are cheesy and kind of lame. But the thing about it is, is that when I'm playing a retro futuristic cyberpunk game, I want cheesy. So, you know, like the main city being called Night City. And yeah. instead of a modem, it's a cyber modem, right? But yeah. Basically, this city, Night City, as a result of corporate greed and constant cycles of war, is a backlit nightmare of gangs, wage slaves, drugs, and general apathy, where it's like the only winners are the people at the top of corporations. And the second book also gives an overview of tech and communications in Night City. For example, fax machines are still used in 2013, apparently. Laptops are called cyberdecks, and instead of receiving news on the internet, right... News is transferred across the city via wires connected to vending machines at certain locations on the city streets. And basically, you insert a euro dollar, the game's currency, and it prints the paper out for you. Nice. So it's got. That's what he thought, like, you know, how news was going to be told in the future. I mean, that's just. It's just fucking awesome. But yeah, the game's city um, is like the main city of it. It's not really anything to scream about as a setting, right? It's got like a layout of a typical modern city, but it's infused with a grimy and unfamiliar machines, right? Um, the, the the big thing is like there's a couple of sort of main corporations who are the ones that are providing all this oppression. For example, Arasaka, which is a uh, Japanese company, which I believe can be found either in the corporate district or in the Japan town, which is a part of the city. And there's like Militech, right? So it's a military tech company. Those are like the two main bad guys. But the thing is, it's not really remarkable per se as a setting. It's It's basic cyberpunk setting but this is kind of intentional because the book even says that the setting works best when it's familiar but different enough to be unnerving right and to quote the book um i wish i could get my pondsmith to read this but yeah <laughs> night city is the feel not the substance it should be a place that the referee has an immediate grasp of allowing him to give descriptions of the proper you are there ambience night city plays best when you use a city the players are somewhat familiar with the recognition of street names and places juxtaposed with booster gangs, hovering assault vehicles, will make the 21st century even stranger than fiction. So, in you could you could set this in London, for example, because you and I live near London. Yeah. Um, you could set it there, and there is in fact a UK source book for one of the later versions. That's pretty awesome. And booster gangs, for those who don't know, are basically drug-fueled gangs. So they'll like take a bunch of coke and then just rush a person and steal all their shit. Oh, sound like sound like uh, a lovely fellas. Sounds like our hometown, eh, James? <laughs> yeah. Um, pretty funny uh, observation I did just then. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 realistically, this sentiment is exactly right. It's not like the cyberpunk future is supposed to be anything wildly different. It's about holding up a cracked mirror to our own reality. That's where the success of something like Black Mirror comes from, because it's showing you how things can be if we continue to be complicit with corporations and technology, you know? But I think the philosophy of the game is summed up best in the View from the Edge book. So this is like the main rules, right? 
There's basically three simple mantras to help a player understand Night City and the general milieu of the game in general. Firstly, the first rule is style over substance. This means that, like, within Night City, it's okay to play a character with simple goals, image-obsessed characters, people obsessed with street cred over real skill, or trustworthiness, you know? And applying this to the world, it means that the world is laden with neon, loud advertisements, poster boys, celebrity culture, but a world really lacking in humanity and full of slacktivists, you know? That's where that sort of comes in. It's like style over substance. And the second matter, and the second mantra is attitude is everything. This is the punk aspect to the game. It's all about like a specific point of view. The characters in this setting can be destroyed in a heartbeat. It's very easy to die in the game. So like a badass attitude is more important because you know, let's say for example you go into like a rival gang's hideout and you 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 probably be better off convincing them that they're gonna die if they fight you than actually fighting yeah. them because you'll probably die. Yeah, yeah, that seems like that. That's definitely a good play to use. Yeah, because it makes it kind of more cinematic. Do you know what I mean? Very rarely do the people just kick in the door and start firing. It's always like this, you know, heated exchange where people are trying to get the other one to back down first. And, you know, that's that's what the game is fucking all about. And uh, the very final mantra is live on the edge. It's about risking life and limb just for reputation, just to be cock of the walk on the streets of Night City or for small amounts of cash. It's about taking risks to become like a like a legend. Nice. Um, which which is fun. But yeah, that's basic. That's basically it for the setting. I mean, I could go into locations, places, things like this, but just imagine a cyberpunk world. It's that, okay? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's a pretty. I like the fact that um, sort of realizing, and I'm, I'm sure you'll get into more detail about it later. But sort of realizing anything cyberpunk is still like in every iteration setting, whoever built it in whatever platform, it is always sort of so very similar and the same in terms of. Um, like one of the vibes that is uh, sort of picking up again I think is the 80s vibe because obviously this was written yeah, back then and the neon lights and everything like that you know everything is proper sort of that retro futuristic yeah, retro punk 80s type punk stuff Totally, and even, you know, Mork Borg are coming out with uh, Cyborg, their new um, cyberpunk setting. I think I think you're right, though. That's one of the reasons I think cyberpunk is appealing as a genre, because it actually has established rules. Sci-fi, I don't particularly like for that very reason, because you could just do anything. Look at Futurama. Yeah. That's a competent sci-fi show, but they set it a thousand years in the future so they could do literally anything. Yeah. That's the problem with sci-fi, whereas cyberpunk is based in our reality with... I guess, like, sort of uh, very close leaps in technology, ones that are due to happen soon. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like the fact that um, I think uh, when I watched a, a sort of uh, an interview type thing that was done with uh, Pondsmith, he mentioned that, um, you know, he likes the fact that in the in sort of the worlds, even though there's this advanced technology, such as, you know, say a plasma gun, Obviously, on the streets, someone could be using a plasma gun as a barbecue. So it was like he—he, he, I think he mentioned like it was. Um, it, it was like the, when you want to look at technology and try to fit it into your world, it's not about you know you uh, like seeing how the military uses it. It's seeing how it tri- then trickles down. Yeah, yeah. I think one of my favourite things that I heard him say was, um, and, and relating to like the whole punk aspect, was that it's called cyberpunk not cyber pain because it's it's literally all about the punk life of the cybernetic world totally yeah because it's about oppression rebellion things like this and 
you know you don't play characters that are winners per se but yeah i i i think i think it's a great setting it, the thing is is that like i said there's not not much original in the setting itself here but the thing is it's it's a he he basically said he wanted to amalgamate everything from all types of cyberpunk so and and it does a great job of that it's basically just full of shit for for um fans of every type of cyberpunk um even including things like mad max if you wanted to go road warrior on my ass <laughs> but yeah the world is pretty cool but a lot of the world building is actually done you know in the how to play the game sections and by extension character creation if you want to know what citizens of Night City are like, this is where it all gets laid out. Um, you know, characters fall into one of many roles, basically. Like classes, these all grant you access to an exclusive skill. For example, the Rocker Boy. These guys are rock stars who use, who can use charismatic leadership to rile up crowds and get them to riot. That's brilliant. By definition, rock rocker boys they're rebellious musicians basically anti-establishment guys who try to incite change and war um, on corporations via their music um for example uh, in the video game for those that are playing it uh, johnny silverhand is a rocker boy the guy played by keanu reeves but other classes include med technicians techies hackers which are called net runners in this cops and even media men who work for news corps the main innovation the game made at the time was the life path system where to determine your skills along with your character's backstory you roll on a bunch of tables and subtables and stuff and uh, i rolled one randomly earlier and got a whole backstory about a street kid who joined the army learned how to fight and repair electronics but then got addicted to drugs when he left the army and also had dirt on a ceo from night city That's awesome. and could call the ceo up for favors which is is fucking cool and that was just all rolled up randomly yeah, yeah, every single part of it. And it's really decent. It's like a really cool way of determining character and it makes you kind of play outside your comfort zone, yeah. adding to that feel of unease, you know? That is good. How long did it, that take you, that rolling up? Oh, I can't remember. I mean, it must have been about 15 minutes or so. so to, to make a character, right, to do the stats, you could do it in about 10 minutes. And then, you know, if you're doing a life path and writing everything down, about 15 minutes, something like that's that. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's just good. I love... Um, Quick character creations um, is definitely something I'm, I'm drawn towards recently because it's like exactly that. If you can just roll up something that will give you some inspiration and then something that will basically potentially force you to do something out of the ordinary, sometimes um, you actually find yourself stopping you know, playing your, your standard character type and all this stuff, playing something new and really enjoying it and also you're just evolving as a role player. Yeah, exactly. That's why I like stuff like this. You don't have to use it, right? But, you know, do, because it's quite fun. And, uh, you know, they're numerous in their combinations. And they have things from your friends, so you might have contacts in a city, to family, to romances you've had. Um, even goes into detail about how those romances ended, if they did at all. And even delves into, like, disastrous events in your life. So, for example, that drug addiction was one, but it could be your house got blown up and you lost a limb. But, you could also roll that you win the lottery and have a character start with shitloads of money. And, and, and the thing is, is that this is like, this is the reason that you do it as well. Even if you're not a big into role playing, do it because you might get something good out of it. But it's not essential to making a character in this game, basically. But uh, yeah, the next section of the 2013 game is uh, all about gear and cybernetics. And it's got all sorts of guns, laser weaponry, microwave weapons and armor. But the real meat is like the cybernetic stuff, right? You have semi-practical stuff like cyber tattoos that move or cyber livers that mean you can choose whether or not to get drunk when you drink, which is pretty cool. 
Um, you have colour changing hair, things like this, but all the way to chainsaw arms, wolverine claws, hidden compartments on your body, thermo camera eyes to lighters in your fingers. And this is this is the thing, like creating a character, I could I could make one in about fifteen minutes, right? Easy. Um, which is pretty good. But it's when you get to the gear, right? There's so much that it's I can get lost in it. And not really? not in like a bad way, but what I mean is like it's in a good way. This is where like the character customization really comes into it because the amount of different combinations you could have for cyberware, right, is just is insane. Like it's just ridiculous. I mean, even if your game is like, you know, all about social climbing and corporations and you never do any gunfighting then there's so many fashion options do you know what i mean like oh, to yeah, show off yeah. your wealth to make yourself like actually customize your look your feel and and yeah that that's pretty cool and to give you like a, an example right um we uh, i'm obviously remaking everyone's characters in cyberpunk 2020 at the moment and uh yeah I, i've got uh my brother for example is he's playing a, a character from a shadowrun campaign and of course his character was an orc in shadowrun and orcs don't exist in cyberpunk 2020 so he picked, uh, he's got cyber fangs um, that, that are like vampire teeth in his mouth so he can bite people. And he's got wolverine claws, which are called wolvers, and uh, they're in your cyber arms. Um, we've also got another character who's a nomad. So these are like Mad Max types who live outside the cities in tribes, they call them. Uh, yeah, Katie's character's a nomad. She's got a uh, chainsaw arm, and on that, so she's got one cyber arm, and on that you can put four different attachments. So she's got a chainsaw arm. Uh, a hidden laser and a flamethrower. Are they all and currently contained in the arm, or do you have to separate them and put the new arm on? No, no, it's it's all contained within the same arm. So she's got four different attachments on that arm. That's pretty uh, Although her hand is is a chainsaw. So, yeah, pretty fucking cool actually. Um, with the hacker, like all of his stuff went into hacking. You know, hacking stuff. So so he's got like loads of different interfaces, so he can, like in Japan, they have these um, internet terminals that you can log into at. Um, sort of on crossroads and uh, street corners and stuff like this which are in this game right and uh, so he's got ones where he can interface with that and just see it in his brain he can do it with most machines and things like this so it's all like neural based stuff and uh, yeah my we've got people with fucking thermal vision fucking microscope vision things like this it's just fucking cool man like it's really the, the customizability is ridiculous. I, you can make so many different combinations. They, how do they sit in a book? Are they like? Is it like a uh, just like a bunch of pages where it lists them out, or does it like start on a table giving you a page reference? In in the twenty in twenty thirteen, the version we're on at the moment, uh, unfortunately, it's it's not the best laid out. Um, it's just pages and pages with each big big description. Cool. Um, it does improve in later versions, thankfully. But uh, I bet that must yeah, have been. It's just cool. Like. Just, I don't know, fun to a degree if you're writing it out, but absolutely mental because uh, presumably by everything you've said, there's tons of customization. There's a lot in this game and even more in future ones, so it's crazy, but yeah. Um, let's talk about hacking for a minute because it's called net running in this game and we've got a net runner on our team in our current game, uh, well, in my current game. Um, net running is really cool, but it's almost like its own own whole game, like it's which is both cool and a bit of a problem. I'll talk about why it's a problem later, but to give a brief overview, uh, a net runner needs two things, a cyber deck, which is a laptop, and software on that cyber deck, which are basically all programs. And a cyberdeck is, as I said, a laptop, but the amusing thing about them is the artwork. And I sent you a couple of pictures from this. Yeah. This is like from a pre-home computer world, you know, and this is what they thought laptops would look like. And they 
It basically looked like an effects pedal for a guitar. Yeah. With a tiny little screen that flips yeah, up. It looked like an effects pedal. Also, um, it kind of reminded me of uh, the old school cartridge consoles as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they definitely do. But, you know, they didn't think that these devices would have big screens, so it's got like a tiny pager-sized screen that flipped up on yeah, it. Yeah, um, I thought that you wouldn't necessarily be, uh, you know, using the screen to, to, to look at stuff. The only thing you'd gain from all this is just information, so it just needed to be like, yeah, exactly that, a pager screen to tell you what you want yeah, to know. Yeah, I mean, know. it's worth noting... You know, most net runners, yeah, they they can use that for something very basic, or I don't know if it tells you the battery life or something like that. But they'll usually have like a neural interface, so they'll plug their head directly into it. You can get a monitor for your Cyberdeck as well, which I thought was funny. So when I was remaking Rob's character, I did, I did buy him a a, a screen so that other people can see what he's doing while he's hacking. But now he has to carry the screen around as well. So <laughs> I I don't know. I, I just thought that's funny. But yeah. Um, they they come in various shapes and sizes, but you can jack into the Cyberverse via loads of different means, right? So you can put electrodes on your head, which is like the slowest method, via a home computer or a portable computer, which is actually what the Netrunner in my game has, which isn't a laptop, actually. Um, a portable computer is one where you still need a phone connection. It's just small enough to carry around in a briefcase. Shut up. Um, but you still need to connect to like a phone line or a data terminal or something like this, which is just amazing. But the thing is, uh, his character creation, this was the only one he could afford, um, and they are expensive. And lastly, there's a cellular computer, which uses your mobile phone's connection to connect. So that's the only way you can get a properly mobile connection, yeah, I was gonna say, basically. I like the fact that there's still these limitations in place, because otherwise it does get a bit, a bit game-breaky, I think. I found that in Shadowrun 4th Edition with wireless hacking. It's, it just made hacking too easy. Um, but Yeah, because there really does need to be these, these kind of like, well, yes, it's futuristic, but you need to have some kind of control aspect because yeah if you can just hack on the fly like wirelessly then you're kind of you're open to anything and everything yeah exactly i mean it it gets to the point where just people uh, put it this way in the video game you know you can hack people's eyes and just turn their optics off straight away and things like this and it gets to the point where hacking becomes completely broken if you put that into your tabletop game I th- i'm fairly certain you know there'll be ways around it you know if there there are different levels of security on people's devices and things like this but you know it, it, i i like the limitations of wired internet uh, in in my uh, cyberpunk games because like you say i think it provides an extra layer of challenge it's not as simple as just being a hacker than hacking everything it's you gotta yeah, get to you gotta get like, to the fucking server room or in- it's like if you allow your players too much freedom in an already uh, powerful world then I do think that it's a, it's very easy for those players to get a bit power hungry, not in a bad way, but just because they have such free reign, they can just basically destroy a lot really quickly when that was never their intent. Yeah. Um, or like get carried away with something, be like, oh my god, this is amazing! I can, I'm going to hack a, a chicken shop, and then you just get all the food. It's been like, right, we're going to have food forever because. You know, I've, I've hacked them or, you know, it could get even more brutal like that. Be like, oh, I've just hacked the bank. I've got endless money. I can buy what I want now. Full stop. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, well, yeah, exactly. These... That's, one of yeah. The, that's one of the... But then, the, you know, the saving grace is how hacking actually works in this game. And I'll get into that in, in just a second. Because even if you were doing it wirelessly, which you could if you had a cellular connection, the it's not exactly a cakewalk. It's still going to be difficult if you're going to hack the chicken shop and get infinite food. And I would say hacking an ATM is going to be really fucking difficult. But um, okay, good. the internet in this game, though, is kind of cool. It's re- represented um, by 
an interface, right? So an interface is like a graphical interface, uh, and there are loads of different versions of it. So like you know Windows or whatever, right? But it's it's like a graphic representation of the internet, and usually looks like a wireframe range of mountains and valleys, like you see on so many vaporwave album covers nowadays. Um, yeah. And in the interface, you have an icon, which represents you, and any programs you use also have an icon. But the icon could be anything, right? You could, you know, look like a goblin, a robot, or whatever. But some websites are represented by icons, and they might be buildings that you go into, or just a logo that you touch atop of a mountain. Um, and in fact, there's a game within the internet in this game called Dungeon, where you can dungeon crawl and level up a character, a game within a game. <laughs> Pretty cool, what? eh? So you can so you can game within a game. Uh, that's actually, I'm not gonna lie. That is a fun piece of downtime. That is. It really is. Because um, uh, you can just be like, right, I'm gonna play this game, and then you actually just you <clears> literally <throat> just sit there at the table and play it out. Well, and imagine doing a uh, a dot hack or you know sword art online style game where you play all net runners who are obsessed with this fucking online game. Be well fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, hacking, it works a lot like the normal game with its own version of combat, right? But instead of really like using skills, as it were, you use things called programs and you have to install them onto your cyber deck, which has to have enough memory units and you can upgrade your cyber decks like speed, memory, uh, all, all sorts of oh, and data walls, which is like its protection kind of thing. So you can get intrusion programs, stealth ones, programs to protect your laptop from harm and you from harm because people can actually hurt you via your laptop with certain programs. Um, and essentially, yeah, it works like the sort of getting past uh, data walls, things like this, um, avoiding alarms, fighting ice, which is like a, a counter intrusion software, and sneaking and things like this. And you're trying to get into things called data fortresses, which actually are mapped out on graph paper. Um, <laughs> so that's that's kind of how it works. It's really good, really sophisticated, and really fun. Um, the hacker in our game, for example, I could only afford three programs, so I got him one called Hammer, which destroys data walls. But the trouble is, is that going through those walls and entering into, you know, a data fortress is uh, this particular spell always spell program always trips the alarm every time. But oh. he's also got a stealth program which allows him to send out millions of dummy signals uh, at the same time he goes in, which is to stop people from seeing him. And lastly, he's got decryption software. So it's things like that. But there's fucking loads. It's awesome. But here's the problem. The big, big, big problem with this is that the hacking is... Uh, that's hours of play. Going into a data fortress, smashing down walls or sneaking through passages, trying to get to the files and decrypting them, doing combat against ice, things like this... I mean, it's full combat. It's a full dungeon run. It's it's. I see. I see what you're saying. It forces <clears> you into a dungeon crawl when you're hacking, which is an interesting mechanic to have thought up to try and use. Oh, it's great to make it challenging. But I suppose if you're, yeah, it's it's one of those difficult ones, isn't it? Because if your main story is to like that hacking section should be a bit part in the bigger picture, mm. then that's going to eat up a lot of uh, table time, isn't it? Yeah, and the, uh, I, I, the basically, I think there's a couple of solutions to it, but it, it does take up too much table time. And the trouble is, if there's no other net runners, none of them are involved. No, 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 no one else. It. And you know, the trouble is, you can't abstract it out because everything the um, everything the hacker does is based around upgrading their computer and getting 
programs and if you just abstract it out and go well just do a hacking role and let's see if you succeed then you're really defeating the point of having a hacker so you could make them npc only but people want to play hackers because it's cool so i mean there are a couple of solutions and i mean yeah you could just abstract out and just have them do a role second of all um one of yeah one of the big problems as i say is like that everything they're doing is happening in milliseconds so you can't really have a scene where they're hacking and people are fending off guards because everything the hacker's doing, like a whole three-hour session, could be one second, you know, of actual time. That's, that's madness. So my solution is that uh, that's not how it works. And in fact, the combat runs in the computer take as long as real ones. And I'm going to try and incorporate them. Um, I hope they don't listen to this podcast. But I've got an idea for an, an adventure, James, where... <laughs> I uh, where they've got to uh, hijack a broadcast done by one of the major TV corporations. Oh, nice, nice. And I think the final encounter is going to be them fending off guards that are coming up to the, the room that they're in while the hacker's doing combat rounds while they're doing it. So I think if you just slow uh, okay. what they're doing down to, to take the same amount of time, yeah, it's not realistic, but it, it solves yeah. the problem. Yeah, it does. And it kind of... It... It does kind of make sense in the ter- in the terms of um, high pressure environment. It's going to mm. be yeah. It's going to take you a bit longer, and also the way that you decide to sort of hack it, lol, um, is that it does allow for the other players who aren't involved in the uh, hacking inside the game to to do stuff, be part of it. Yeah. So I think yeah, that's that's uh, no, I think that's a really good idea, especially if it's like. Right, you know, we need to do this at the same time as this happening. Instead of waiting, you know, one turn to be over and next one to do it, it's like, well, put them all together and work together whilst everything's happening all at once. Yeah, and then maybe while if there's any, well, the thing is as well, right? Hackers in netrunners in this game, I should say, have um, they do have an ability that nobody else has, right? As do all the classes, and their ability is called interface, and basically this allows them to use menu functions and to put it very, very simply. Um, they can do most basic functions of any device simply by doing a role, right? So the thing is, it's only the big hacks, the ones where you're trying to get the data, the, the mission-critical item, that are the ones that matter, and you can turn those into big encounters that involve everyone. Um, but th- let's say, for example, you want to turn a security camera off. It's, you know, well, that's a, th- that's a function the device already has, so you can turn it off. Let's say you do want to go to the nice. chicken shop and get them to vend an, an, an unbelievable amount of food pretty easy because you just hack it do one roll so most of the time you're not going to be doing this you know over encumbersome system for hacking but the thing is this the hacking is good it's fun so it's worth doing but you've just got to think of a workaround so the other players don't get bored um but yeah yeah perhaps you could sort of do it bit by bit be like right so today the hacking is going to we're going to incorporate like the full rules because it's like everyone's being involved with something or it's a really complicated thing or whatever and then like another type could be like because uh, there's so many things that need to happen at once high pressure environment type thing then you could be like yeah this is going to be uh, the, the shortened version you can just have different hacking um, gameplay uses yeah exactly exactly you know like how you wouldn't do terrain for every bloody random encounter you know um, yeah but yeah we've we talked about the uh, uh, we haven't yet actually talked about the system right and to be perfectly honest it's quite unremarkable, okay? But it's, I don't think it's really the point. The system's quite good, serviceable, but the main point really is character customization. So it's a simple system, 
fuck loads of character options. I think that's the point. But the main mechanic is a D10 one. So you st- take a stat, like cool, for example, add it to a skill, like fast talking, and add the bonuses to a D10 roll and try to beat a target number. Pretty simple. To shoot someone, reflexes plus pistols. To punch someone, reflexes plus kung fu or melee or brawling or whatever. But it's very simple. Nice. But combat is kind of where the game gets tactical. And uh, as I mentioned, the book for it is called Friday Night Firefight, right? This is actually, again, almost a sub-game, right? Because Friday Night Firefight is its own skirmish game. If you just want to sit down and play out some battles on a Friday night, or as it were. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, so it's, it's almost like they've incorporated another mini-system that they can then use as a basis for combat in other games. That's, I'm not going to lie, that's, um, that's pretty smart. Because, well, I mean, yeah, put it this way, one of our to... favourite games, Savage Worlds, did basically the same thing. It was based on a, an old skirmish game that he was making, and uh, then he incorporated it as the rules for combat in Savage Worlds, and it works because it's a really good game with a lot of options during combat. But yeah, um, so Friday Night Firefight is quite simple um, and at the same time quite complicated so just think about any action you could possibly do in a gunfight you can probably do it and there's probably a rule for it like aiming taking cover things like this but the main sort of mechanic of the game is you know firing guns at each other and one of uh, all the guns have things like weapon accuracy rate of fire how many shots they can do and around how much damage right if you want to shoot someone say i've got a pistol i roll reflexes plus pistol and I shoot the guy. Then then I you either aim for a specific body part and take a penalty, or you roll a uh, or you just roll randomly for where you hit. Armor in this game is really customizable because you could have different armor on your left arm, right arm, legs, body, head, right? So when you roll randomly to where you hit, there's different armor values and you're basically trying to beat that armor value and the number of points you beat it by, they take that uh, amount of damage. In fact, in Cyberpunk 2013, it's not quite that. It's like you got wound levels a bit like Savage Worlds. If you beat it by four, you're lightly wounded. If you beat it by eight, you're medium wounded, something like that. Mm. But anyway, the point is, is, yeah, so you're trying to beat armor scores. Um, and where it gets a little bit complicated is if you've got a gun with a rate of fire of two, you roll twice, right? Simple. If you're using burst fire on a, an assault rifle, you roll three times. Pretty simple. But then automatic fire, right? Let's say, for example, James, I'm trying to shoot you, and you're down behind a wooden table using it as cover. The wooden table will be like 10 stopping power cover, right? Then you've got armor on of a leather jacket, which would be four, right? So you kind of need to beat a 14 to to hit you uh, with damage, right? But what happens is is that you're you're behind cover. So first of all, um, I'm trying to... Let's say I'm using an automatic weapon as well, right? And you're behind cover and I'm going full auto. First of all, I'm going to try and hit you. So I roll my to hit roll and then the amount of uh, to hit I get over the target number is the amount of bullets that actually hit from my full auto, but I've expended the whole magazine. Now I have to roll separate damage and let's say, for example, I uh, I hit seven times and my gun does 3d6. I need to roll 3d6 seven times right and oh then my. count the ones that go past a 10 because you're behind a cover of 10 once i do that i subtract 10 from all of those and then only do i hit your four and any that go above a four you take damage and i it's pretty complicated don't it that's the only problem with it burst fire rate of fire to any of these are reasonable but if somebody, uh, and even if you're just shooting somebody uh, and you've got your leather on, four armor, and I go full auto, seven bullets here, 
well, then I'm just comparing it to 4, right? So I just go 7 on minus 4 off every number, which is a pretty easy mathematics to do, and then see how many damage you take. Pretty easy. Yeah. But the thing is, when you're behind cover, then it adds that extra layer. Not only that, but every time the cover, every time a bullet gets past cover, it decreases the level of cover by 1. So it's easy for players, and bear in mind in this game it said that GMs should roll damage. So if you if you did hit seven bullets, I'd probably just use a dice roll on my phone and just go one, two, three, four, five, and just do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you could. I mean, yeah. I suppose there are ways around it that people have probably done, but it's not really. It doesn't make it fluid, um, as in like you could just have some macros set up or a, or a spreadsheet, so you can key in some numbers, and then you can figure out, mm. you know, behind this kind of cover. But that really is shouldn't have to be incorporated to make your game more fluid because imagine that we're sitting there at the table and we use those rules exactly as written mm. and then it'd be like right okay so how many you've expended this right okay wait a second carry the one well see, see Someone the thing is as well complication you yeah. can't even really just go okay that's seven bullets at 3d6 so that's 21d6 you can't even do that because that's not really how it works because it's tracking if each bullet beats a four, not as the whole number yeah. beats a four. Yeah, so, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's like, roll again. All right, give me a sec. All right, okay, roll again. Yeah. It's the, okay, you're dead. It's the worst part about <laughs> the system. And bear in mind as well, you can you can also divide those bullets between people. So imagine how fucking long that's going to take because you could do a big arcing shot. I will say this in its favor. The system is really, really good, really tactical, other than that one part. That's the one part that I don't like. But... It should be um, handled only in rare situations, really, because if you're using full auto, you're, you're, you're spraying the whole fucking magazine, right? And you're using it to take out three dudes at once. Fine. It's a cool tactical maneuver, uh, but your weapon accuracy is also much lower, so it should be used sparingly and only when you're really close range and if it's maybe by surprise. Um, in addition to that, if you've expended your whole magazine, you've got to reload next turn. It probably is a more wise move to use burst fire more often than not, I will say. But mm. you know that there's going to be certain people that just go, fuck it, 21d6, I'm going for it. And they'll just they'll just do it every time. So yeah, I'm fairly certain all I'm going to have to do is just have a dice roll on my phone and set up a 5d6 macro or whatever and just be like, boom, 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 and then just have all the numbers on my screen. But You, you could know, just be like, you could just turn them off, right? Yeah, yeah, you can. turned off. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe, and then just do it as burst, you know, but uh, fuck it. I mean, I, I like the Friday Night Firefight system. It's really tactical, really good if you just want to play a battle game for one mo uh, one night or something. But yeah, really good. Um, that is pretty much the first edition of the game, and uh, don't worry, everyone, we're not going to go as deep into all the others because the system pretty much stays the same, but with minor changes. Um, but anyway, it's 2013 is a good setting, easily available, but I wouldn't bother for a couple of reasons. It has less gear and options, in uh, and, and it has less gear and options than later games, and is worse, has a worse layout in, in a lot of respects as well. The life path system is also refined in later editions, and yeah, that's basically it. Cyberpunk 2013 is a cool relic, but not really worth playing because the wound thing is worse in this game and more complicated you you know have to go on tables and stuff yeah and of course the gear and the life path system but 
Fortunately, as I said, the game doesn't change an awful lot between editions, but let's talk about the later editions and what they bring to the table. So the second version is Cyberpunk 2020, and this was, similar to 2013, released as a box set which had the rule book, a reference guide, and an adventure. And the game's world, despite being seven years on, hasn't changed that much. I mean, it does contain the reunification of East and West Germany in its timeline now, because that happened while the game was being written. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, it's only published two years after the first one, so it's more like a refinement yeah. of the first version. It makes some very minor changes to combat, mainly just slight quality of life enhancements. For example, uh, wounds no longer work the way they did before, where you're rolling over the armour and see if you're lightly, medium, whatever. Now it's just simple hit points. If I beat your leather armour by three points, rolling a seven... That means you take three damage, and it goes onto a damage track. If you're one to five wounds, that's light. Um, if you're six to ten wounds, that's medium, and so on. And depending on oh, how nice. wounded you are, you you get penalties. A little bit better there. Uh, one thing is, and you, this is you'll realise this is where Savage Worlds got their shaken rule. Every time you take damage, you also have to roll to see if you're stunned. Um, which is basically means that you're unable to act until you can save from stun, and stun gets harder the more wounded you are, basically. Ah. So Savage Worlds nicked see. it. I'm watching you, Shane. The plagiarism there. I'm watching you, you bitch. No, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. But yeah, um, that is that's pretty that's pretty much fucking it, man. I mean, the, this version of the game is really worth a look though for a few reasons. Firstly, right, it's fifteen fucking pounds, which is really good, or at least it was when I got it. I don't know if it was on sale. But um, secondly, it's got a ton of cyberware and gear, and it's arranged in tables, you know, properly with simple explanations. Um, really good pages and pages of it though which is fucking awesome and that's that's where the fun of the game comes in if you like shopping this is your game you know thirdly yeah, this, though but that's uh, really one where if you like shopping it's just like okay now's the chance to shop but yeah. we're going to do that next session i'll give you the book or i'll give you the pages yeah, 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 yeah. and then you can just you know like circle highlight the the things in the argos catalog you want for christmas this is exactly what i said to my players because we're playing online we've got seven players it's, i'm not fucking sitting down for a session and just doing shopping so i'm going to put up all the pages of the gear on google drive and just say look if you want to fucking buy shit for your character just do it mid-game but two of the characters have started off in debt uh, character creation because you can do that in cyberpunk 2020 you run out of money so one of them's got an Arasaka store card where he bought a bunch of uh, cyberware from, which I know is stupid, by the way. Um, anyway, in this version, right, um, it streamlines a couple of things. Net running is slightly easier. Combat is better because of the new wound things and less tabley. And character generation is a bit easier. So the li life path system is just all about your background now. You don't have to do it, but it is worth doing because, you know, rolling certain events will give you contacts, extra money, quirks, flaws, all this shit. But skills are no longer linked to it. Instead, starting skills are linked to your class, meaning certain classes start with skills pertaining to their role within the team. So you, you, you basically like, say, if you're if you pick media, for example, you'll probably, uh, the skills you can pick from, and you get 40 points to spend in them, uh, the skills you can pick from are things like, you know, wardrobe and style, fashion, um, performance, because you're, you know, you're a media guy, things like this. And then you get a bunch of points, not that many, but it's based on adding two of your stats together to get pickup skills. And these are uh, just, you can pick from the whole pool of skills. So this is stuff you picked up on the way. So yes, you might have picked Rocker Boy, and you've got, you know, song composition, guitar playing, things like this. But you have a couple of pickup skills. So not many, but you'll get like, you could maybe have pistols or shotguns. Maybe you go shooting at the weekend or whatever, you know, things like this. 
And essentially, it's less random, right? So it allows you to choose your shit, and it also keeps it more in keeping with the class while not being entirely class-based. Um, but for me, having read all of these books now, um, 2020 is my favourite version, right? It's just the right amount of crunch, and is also the most supported one, with most of the books now available in print at DriveThruRPG, which is where I got my copy. Nice. And if you aren't sold, right, there's a supplement that adds vampires and werewolves into the game. What? Yeah, I don't know why, but yeah, it's pretty cool. But yeah, for me, um, this is it's basically a refinement of the 2013 uh, first edition of the game, basically. Yeah, it sounds like it, considering it's just two years after. Yeah. Um, I do like the fact that you're saying right now that that's your favourite version. It's great. It's great. I mean, but, you know, I think you and I agree that Cyberpunk is, to me, is about retro future, not future future. So I think that's why I like it oh, so yeah, much. Completely. I was, yeah, I had my heart yeah. set on this one from the get-go for that very reason. Um, and we'll talk about the latest version soon, but yeah. Um, Cyberpunk 2020 was actually supported and played for so long that the next edition came out 15 years later in 2005, and it was... It's a great name, right? Uh, well, they got real <laughs> clever with this one because it was Cyberpunk 3.0. Yeah, V3.0. <laughs> every and, and let me tell you, man, this is this was a flop if ever there was one because the game basically advances the meta plot, right? So if you look at the world as it was in the 2020 version, it's advanced. You know, the companies have done stuff. There have been more shit that's gone on. And it's set after the fourth corporate war. The internet has been completely corrupted and is now unusable and six colors cults have uh, come up in the place of the previous corporate overlords and these cults are basically the ones so, trying to write history because all of the history was lost when the internet went down so does this one give a particular date that it's set in uh yes does it is it uh i think it's 2033 okay. if i remember correctly but uh all right yeah and so that's potentially why it has version three in the title yes i think so but yeah something i uh, haven't mentioned thus far the old versions of cyberpunk use a system called interlock which is the system we've described so far, you know, the Friday night firefight shit. Mekton also uses yes. it as the space teenagers. and uh, But here's, here's one... It's a D10 system, isn't yes. it? Yes. Uh, but let me summarise the reason you shouldn't play version 3 of Cyberpunk. In fact, one of the big reasons. There's many. Fusion. Oh, great. So yeah, this is where Altos L So this is where Artalsorian Games basically uh, started their fusion system, and it was a new version of Interlock, basically that was uh, pared down, I guess you could say, and uh, basically made terrible. Um, we played a campaign using the fusion system in uh, one of these guys' products, actually, which was um, Bubblegum Crisis, and it's such a bad fucking system. It's not like offensively bad but it's it's got two main yeah. things going against it it lacks any real fun factor there's nothing remarkable that it does and it's a quite dull game to play especially considering the setting yeah also you could do um you could do a short short campaign uh, 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 um and it wouldn't be your favorite yeah i mean we had fun with it but not as much as yeah. uh, many others and uh, the other thing is it's really easily minmaxable really really easily hand to hand combat is completely broken and uh, yeah, most basically reflexes as a, as a god stat in the game. You max that out, you'll be fine. There's it's and also one of the final things is is healing in it. You know they decided to they decided to make it more gritty, and it's actually really not that fun. And you end up no, it's game breaking. Yeah, really. I think you've got to max out reflexes and body, otherwise yeah. you're fucked. Basically, 
Yeah, you go to hospital and you're literally out for a week. And um, honestly, we had a couple of times where the players at the table just like, right, so they'll be out for a week, uh, two weeks. What do you want to do? Do you want to just carry on with the mission? Or it's like, now nah, we'll did just wait. Because, you know, I find in any yeah. good campaign, things having sort of a, a time sensitive nature to them is important and in this particular campaign that we played it really did it was really yeah. all about time specifically and uh yeah james's character spent most of the time in the fucking hospital um but it but it, it basically railroads characters into being pretty much the same build um, yeah. all the time but yeah i mean yeah basically fusion sucks and this was where it was kind of starting and then it was kind of it sucked with you know cyberpunk version three and in addition to this the updated setting is really crap. You know, it destroys some of the fundamental parts of the genre, bringing it into a post-apocalyptic game with none of the hallmarks of an anti-establishment game. I think it's a bold move. I just don't think it worked out. And I, I think it's kind of stupid having an internetless, technologyless kind of wasteland. I mean, there's technology, but... Um, I mean, the, but the worst thing is the artwork, right? I sent you a couple of these, and <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. It's really weird. It's really weird, because what they've done is they've dressed up Barbie and Ken dolls and made them look futuristic and cyberpunk and then took taken pictures of it? Yeah, but that's... Um, that's I don't get it. I don't get it. And it looks it looks so bad, doesn't it? I mean... Well, it looks like... Um, it looks like what you'd expect a like, seven-year-old to do who's having fun, trying to, you know, like, create their own awesome worlds in their, in their minds and be like their toys are playing. But then... You know, like some kids nowadays, they do stop motion with Lego. It's like them doing that, but just taking one picture of them in a, in a, in a scene. And, just like, and oh, on like the worst camera possible. Yeah, so, oh, well done, son. That's pretty. Uh, thanks. I won't put that on the fr- on the fridge. You've taped over. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, it's like, it's just like, it, it's also the way the pictures are. For, I think if it was like they they did it and the pictures, you know, looked amusing or cool or whatever i'd be fine with it but it's also the way they look they're like take it they're really bad blurry f- images as well i mean it really it really fucking sucks but basically you know this game from 2005 it's just not worth it it's not worth playing it's not worth looking at it's got shitty setting um crap system terrible artwork just don't bother with it but that brings us to cyberpunk red the latest version of the game and here comes the second fun fact james did you know Obviously, the the video game of Cyberpunk is made by a company called CD Projekt Red. And people think that Cyberpunk Red is called that because of their merger with CD Projekt Red or or their collaboration, I should say. In actual fact, um, all of the Cyberpunk games, as they were being made, had code names. And Cyberpunk version 3.0 was called Cyberpunk Green because it had green artwork and green themes throughout the whole thing. And Cyberpunk Red was called that because the old artwork included a lot of red. And that's basically it. But it had a happy coincidence of, um, you know, CD Projekt Red making the video game. But it's here that our Talsorian games realise their error, right? Because this one is also set after the fourth corporate war, similar to version 3, but it rewrites and disregards all the events of the previous game and is set in 2045. (laughs) Basically, the fourth corporate war resulted in a nuke hitting Night City and uh, the sky turning red in the nuclear aftermath also linking back to the name now the infrastructure from before is basically being reclaimed or has been reclaimed rebuilt um aside from wastelands outside of the cities the internet is coming back but in a vastly different way so the nuke 
reset technology and when people worked to bring it back it more resembled our present day tech and this was sort of the meta plot reason so that Mike Pondsmith could advance cyberpunk into the modern age so it's like the future tech that you see in cyberpunk red is the type of stuff we'd expect to see in the new near future for us um holograms uh-huh. driverless cars um things like things like that basically it's it's pretty fucking cool um for example you know you, there are driverless cars um that are dedicated to taking people through um really unsafe zones of the city it's a company called delamain and they're, they're ai piloted cars that are armored um and are set with ais that can drive you through dangerous situations which is pretty fucking cool um but yeah, um, smartphones, social media, all of the uh, more recognisable version of the internet all came into existence. And uh, that's basically what, what, what Cyberpunk 2045, Red, is all about, I should say. I like the fact that, um, obviously, in 1990, it was Cyberpunk 2020, and it gets to 2020, and it's Cyberpunk Red. <laughs> yeah, I like the fact that my current uh, game is set in the far future of a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. yeah the game of cyberpunk red um well after the setting artwork and and system of version three was like heavily scrutinized they reset the system back to something resembling 2020 systems but with a few minor tweaks for example you now just have one armor rating for your whole body right so this it's easier just to shoot somebody but they've also revamped the way automatic weapons work so you're not rolling for each bullet anymore which is an innovation i might actually put into my 2020 game Nice. Um, and it's got a great GM section, which gives you advice on encounter types, making adventures, and things like this. But the big question, really, because the system's not that different, is do you want modern technology or would you prefer retro-futuristic? And this is really the main difference here. It's important to bear in mind Cyberpunk Red is also, you know, 45 quid for the bloody game and is essentially the same system. Yeah, there's some new tweaks, right? But it's 45 fucking quid, mate. Yeah, I suppose um, mostly they just bring it up to date, right? Pretty much. And, you know, the artwork is reminiscent of, say, uh, Cypher System or D&D, where it's got that level of polish, glossy pages, really yeah. high-quality artwork, you know, things like that. It's, it's a modern RPG, uh, modern mainstream RPG, but some quality of life enhancements in are in the book as well, like streamlined character creation. So now what you can do is you can basically, like... Um, uh, picking off the shelf character by picking a template and then adding other templates to it, like a bag of gear, a pool of stats where you just go I pick this block of stats, I pick this block of skills Um, there's also a fast method so you can roll up a character by rolling randomly instead of picking things and then of course there's the full character creation and the combat as I mentioned is a little better but as I said it's basically the same so it's a question of setting and the style of book you want but yeah, please, God, bear in mind this 45 quid, man. Pay, But vote with your wallets in this situation. And the P- uh, £30 for a PDF is a piss take. I mean, it is. But it's gorgeous, but that's a lot of fucking money. That is... Um, I don't... Uh, I don't think it... It doesn't feel right to have to pay that amount of money for a PDF. It's a, yeah, it's a mistake, isn't it? Now, I've yeah. got to be honest, James. I'm meeting someone in 15 minutes, so we've got to rattle through the end of this, right? Um, let's just uh, let's just discuss quickly what version we'd go for if we were to pick any of the RPGs. I mean, I've already picked twenty twenty, so people know I'll go for that. Yeah, well, to be honest, I'd uh, not just following suit. I would as well because precisely what you said earlier is the it's the retro future, and it's and so that's... well supported as well. There's books and books yeah. and books of fucking cyborg and shit. So yeah, we both like retro futuristic, but 
if you want something more modern, and I will say that sort of scary unease feeling that they've got in 2020 with future technology, they've really nailed it in Cyberpunk Red. Um, but yeah, very final thing to talk about, James, is the video game. I mean, this is where this is where we've ended up now. I mean, the video game did come out, I think, before Cyberpunk Red, um, excluding the Jumpstart kit. Mm. Um, but yeah, let me just tell you a bit about this game because it's it's got so much flack for being unplayable, um, things like this. And the video game is basically... <laughs> yes, it's set in 2077, and so it's after Cyberpunk Red, and it's where the city of Night City is really, really fucking built up. Um, the story of the game is you, you can you can basically pick three backgrounds and that affects the opening sequence for your character. Um, you can be a corporate, a street kid, and I think a nomad, but I'm not sure what the third one is. I picked street kid. And, um, nice. Essentially, what you the, the plot of the game follows you doing this um, a really uh, sort of um, death-defying mission um, to steal a biochip from the biggest corporation and the bad guys in the game, Arasaka. And you steal the biochip, it gets damaged, and then you have to plant it in something biological. And what do you do? You plug it into your brain socket. You get fused in an explosion with the biochip, and it turns out the biochip contains... Uh, the personality of one of the world's foremost terrorists and musicians, Johnny Silverhand, who now <laughs> is part of your uh, part of your consciousness, and you share the same body. Um, and the plot is about trying to uh, maybe find somebody who can uh, back engineer the chip and take it out of you, or maybe find the people that that uh, made the chip. You know, things like this. And the chip is making you really sick, and you're basically on a ticking clock. You're going to die any minute soon. Really great plot. Really great game, uh, incredible atmosphere and amazing voice acting. Uh, sell it. That's the main thing about it. The story is incredible. The setting is uh, fun to look around. You see, the thing is, right, a lot of people are saying the world is a bit um, dull, like it's great to look at, but there's not actually that much to do except for missions, and the missions are great. The thing about it is, is that unlike everyone else, I didn't. I went to this game with no expectations, right? I knew I was going to like it, and I so I didn't watch any trailers. I didn't watch any what's in the game videos. When I came to actually playing it, I saw it for what it was. It's a game where you play missions around a semi-open world, and it's very story-based. And I know there's yeah. not much to do, but it's pretty to look at and cool to drive around in with great music. Yeah, well, I think you did the right thing because I do the same with like films and stuff. You know, I don't. I avoid trailers and avoid all that stuff. But mm. like, yeah, it's like I, that's, I like doing that, and I appreciate the fact that you you've taken that approach. Of I'm not gonna, you know, look at gameplay and and loads of articles about it. You've heard stuff already because it's massive at the moment, and then you just you pick it up, enjoy it for your own um, experience of it, rather than everyone else's experience and them telling you how it's gone. Yeah, exactly. And you know, okay, let's talk about the bugs though. I mean, people are saying they're noticing bugs where when they turn around. Uh, people are disappearing and things like this but the thing about it is some of it's funny though right i mean it is a it is funny and the few bugs that i've seen are quite funny but in addition to that like it, um i didn't notice any of it until people started saying it it's the game actually runs pretty well i mean i'm playing it on ps4 and everyone's saying ps4 version is unplayable but i've heard more complaints about people playing it on ps5 than you know yeah. anyone else and and the thing is, I think because it's n maybe like not necessarily as known hardware-wise that it runs worse on there. Because I've run it on PS4, I encountered two bugs. One of which is where I called. You can basically use your phone to call your bike towards you or your car, and it will uh, ride up next to you on the street. And mine just ploughed at me as fast as it fucking could and killed me. <laughs> um, 
Another, but I would love it if that was a, de- a deliberate design feature instead. But yeah, um, another bug is that you often have quests where a character will have to call you in a day's time, and they don't. And I reloaded my game, and they called me. Simple as that. Other than that, yeah, the game looks somewhat bad on PS4, but it actually is still quite impressive the way it looks, and the story is fucking amazing. I love it. But we're talking about the history of the game here, and uh, sort of the last news on Cyberpunk is that. You know, it got pulled from the PSN store on previous gen consoles because people were reporting that it wasn't working. I fortunately got it on a disc for Christmas. Yes. Um, there's been a 50 gig update which, which fixes. I can't speak. Which fixes a lot of the shit, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's fucking great. And uh, at this point, though, uh, in people who invested in CG, CD Projekt Red are currently there's a class action lawsuit against CD Projekt Red that will probably get chucked out to be perfectly honest because how can you prove what is unplayable but yeah they're suing them basically saying that the game was uh, lied about and wasn't in a state to be played um at launch and just you know for anyone that's listening it is fucking good and uh, it is worth a play but just don't expect it to be gta levels of polish it's it's not yeah it re- well, it's a- thing that i think is pretty fantastic about uh 2077 is that Pondsmith said that that um, he said it's as close as what he would have made um, himself in a broom closet. So if you know if that if the creator of that whole the original Cyberpunk RPG and it's all burst and then got evolved and now a video game has said that, yeah, then so it's, it's definitely worth a play. Put it this way, then maybe don't. Uh, that's a good, a really good point. So maybe don't you know think yeah, but it's not exactly what I thought about. Think. Well, the creator, that's how he wanted to fucking make it, so shut the fuck up. Yeah. Look, it's a good fucking game with good fucking missions. Just if you don't expect, you know, like Red Dead, where you can go play darts, get drunk, all of this shit, just get into the game, do the missions, do the side missions, and you'll have a great fucking time. And also, pick up one of the RPGs because they're good. Just not 2013 version 3 and maybe not Cyberpunk Red. (laughs) In the future, you will be able to send a letter or parcel from anywhere on the planet. This, sir, is the Electro Letter. Right, we do have um, we do have some questions. We'll probably have to keep these and do them maybe next game. But what I think we'll do, we'll just give uh, we'll just go into one of them now, shall we? We'll we'll answer one question. Yeah, Robert Woford. He says, "I have flipped through the new Cyberpunk 2077 book. Actually, 2045, mate. <laughs> um, and it looks like it's almost class-based. I'm curious." If um, that is a correct assessment on my part, Shadowrun has always been my future punk game, even when the first edition made me rip my hair out. But in Shadowrun, the archetypes are just suggestions, whereas CPP looks more class-based, as I said. Um, yeah, it is. It is. But bear in mind, it's only your starting skills that you're buying. You can build the character up in any way you want, and at character creation... All the classes really do is give you one skill that no other class can have. Um, solos have combat initiative. Netrunners um, can use menu functions. Um, rockers can use charismatic leadership. So really, it is, it's class-based, but just put it, see it as more of a background to your character. Because really, I could play a rocker boy that has... Yeah, he's got charismatic leadership, but he left that a long time ago, and now he's, uh, he's just a gun nut or yeah, a wrestler, yeah. you know? That's a really good way to do it. I mean, that's the way that we've um, a few of our characters in our own games have, have kind of evolved, where they have a different, completely different past to what they're doing at the minute. 
Whereas yeah. like that is the base of them. That's that's who they were beforehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the thing is, yeah, it, it's not heavily class based. It's mildly class based. It, almost a bit like Shadowrun. Like you know, if you're a magic user in Shadowrun, you're, that's probably the main thing you do. You know, but it's not a strict class. You can kind of build it in any way you want. And Cyberpunk really is the same. It really is the same. I mean, you could be a guitar player who's got two chainsaws for arms. I mean, the songs yeah. would sound awful, but you could really you could do it. <laughs> you could definitely do it. <laughs> I, would, I would like to imagine how fast the plucking would be if you put like a plectrum on each like divot in the chainsaw yeah, put, put dragon force to shame <laughs> yeah yeah totally that's what it would sound like it would just sound like dragon force um let's do one more of these uh should we do one of the stupid ones and save the rest for the uh, next episode yeah let's do the uh, the, uh, the the timothy e pierce yeah why not this guy's a bit weird um Timothy says, how many werewolves is too many to throw at a party of third-level DCC characters? Depends what level they are. He said third. No, 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 the, the werewolves. Oh, that's a good, yeah, good... Well, do you track your werewolves by level? I don't, I don't know, I mean, six? 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 Or six of no, them? No, I mean, like, six werewolves. Is that too many? I... Th- mm. Well, I don't know, because it depends... Yeah, dep- oh, see, I mean, this is more complicated than you might think. The thing is, I don't think it would be bad to throw 100 werewolves at a, le- a party of level third, level 3. Actually, yeah. Actually, you say, you say too much. It really it really depends on how the the, the characters... What they do. Because- yeah, because imagine, imagine doing like a werewolf-based campaign... You yeah. killed them, and then the whole, uh, all the clans have banded together and come to get you. I mean, that would be a fucking great encounter, even if it was just a chase. Yeah, I mean, uh, realistically, you know, you could throw thousands of them at them, but, you know, they're all at uh, different uh, distances, but the, the aim of it is to just run away, and then it's, you can just have, you can have loads of them. Listen, our time playing DCC on this podcast has taught us the, the art, the, the fine art of running away from an encounter. You know? Yeah, yeah, we we had to learn. You know, everyone loves get to encounter, fight it, fight it, fight it, fight it. No, 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 no. If you see a situation that's bad, fucking get out of there, get out of there, run away. So the answer is uh, as many as you fucking like, mate. Just put as many werewolves as you want in there because, uh, well, because it depends on the situation, doesn't it? And if the players can't get out of it, then they suck. Yeah. By Grabthar's hammer. What a savings. All right, well, I've got to go, mate. Okay, bye. Can you do the contact information and I will uh, see you later? <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. So if you if you want to uh, contact us, just look up uh, 3T RPG Pod. Uh, you can pretty much look it up on any social media accounts there. Um, but, yeah, if you... Um, 3T RPG Pod at gmail.com for the email... Um, become a patron as well and that's forward slash RPG pod and of course there's a, on the drive through RPG if you uh, look up um, Freety RPG publishing and there's some uh, great things that Harrison and Nick have actually made so that's pretty awesome right so that's it I'm literally now on my own for uh, <laughs> this end bit which is which is quite funny but um, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed it, um, and you know, I hope everyone is uh, enjoying the, the new year as much as they can so far. Um, I've just got one last thing to say. Um, just remember that D20s are cool. 
but 20 days, well, that's a good time.